didn't see you there. Sorry, I was just getting the uh, the old wave rider warmed up for another trip to the past on this exciting episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics Completionist podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Nick Byers. Uh, welcome. Episode 11. It's we're we're you know we're doing great you know we're fine as wine as they say, but uh but uh, yeah welcome back to the uh, only podcast uh, that I can find going through the history of DC Comics an issue at a time from the very beginning while contextualizing those issues into the real world history as they are published. Uh, speaking of which, let's get into this week's episode. Uh, this week's episode we will be covering adventure comics number 50 with our man and sandman flash comics number six with flash hawkman and a quick summary of johnny thunder's uh, adventures and action comics number 25 with superman and zatara uh let's get into the real world history this episode will be covering april 9th through april 23rd 1940 that's when these comics were released so let's set the scene. April 9th, the German envoys in Oslo and Copenhagen presented the Norwegian and Danish governments with a German ultimatum, demanding that they immediately accept the quote-unquote protection of the Reich, which basically means, you know, be controlled by uh, Germany, similar to Vichy France. When that happens, I don't know if it's happened yet. I'm not a World War II historian. I'm sorry. Denmark, being the uh, smaller and weaker of the, the two, capitulates, immediately coming under the protection of the Reich, uh, control of the Reich. Norway refuses, stating in Norwegian, uh, which is translated into English, we will not submit voluntarily. The struggle is already underway, which almost immediately began a German offensive I mean, not almost immediately. It immediately began a German offensive against Norway. Uh, they, uh, in that same day, Germany took control of numerous ports uh, uh, in Norway, uh, basically cutting them off from trade and other countries, uh, and and began uh, a military offensive against that country, as well as all the other countries that Germany was up against at the same time. April 12th, 1940, uh, during a press conference at the White House, reporters asked President Roosevelt whether a violation of the integrity of Greenland, such as a German invasion, would raise the question of applying the Monroe Doctrine. And if you know what the Monroe Doctrine is, that's good. But if you don't know, let me tell you. The Monroe Doctrine is a doctrine put in place during the presidency of James Monroe that basically s- kind of separated the world into sort of old world and new world uh, spheres of influence and basically said that anything happening in the new world, which uh, in this parlance is considered North America and South America, would be under the sort of like watchful eye of America. And if you tried to colonize or attack anything in that sphere, this hemisphere, basically, uh, it would be a problem with the United States because we're like, we're not going to stand for that. So basically, if Germany attacked Greenland, which is in our hemisphere, would it trigger the Monroe Doctrine, basically? Uh, The president called the reporters premature, hypothetical, uh, explaining that the U.S. primary interest in Greenland was currently in providing relief for its 70,000 inhabitants if their supply ships from Denmark were cut off, because at this point in time, uh, Denmark is, I guess, the, not owner, but, like, head of Germany. They're, they're, it's like a colony sort of situation, very much like uh, the Commonwealth, um, 
The president also took a question about television, which is really interesting, because at this point in time, television wasn't really a thing. It was becoming more and more prevalent, more and more popular. He said that while it had a great future, the FCC still needed to work out the matter of monopoly prevention to ensure that no single company would control it. And that didn't end up happening, and no single company controlled it, and that's why we have all these channels and networks and uh, for the most part, that's good. Otherwise, other than the fact that cable's so expensive, and yet there's never anything on. And now I sound like an old man. Let's move on. April thirteenth, nineteen forty. I gotta include a hockey uh, fact because I am a, a fan. Uh, the New York Rangers defeated the Toronto Maple Leafs three two in overtime to win hockey's Stanley Cup, which is the trophy. My team just recently won it. Uh, four games to two. The Rangers did not win the Cup again until 1994, 54 years later. In the intervening 54 years, a superstitious phenomenon known as the Curse of 1940 developed, sort of similar to the uh, Red Sox and the Curse of the Bambino uh, that they recently broke in the last five, ten years? I don't know. I don't follow baseball. But speaking of baseball, April 16th, 1940, Bob Feller of the Cleveland Indians pitched a 1-0 no-hitter over the Chicago White Sox at Comiskey Park. To this date, it remains the only major league no-hitter ever pitched on opening day, which is very exciting uh, if you like baseball. And finally, April 23rd, 1940, the Norwegian Nobel Institute, which is the institute that decides and hands out the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, was visited by a German officer who expressed his intention to take over the building. Very polite of this German officer but was told that it belonged to the Nobel Foundation in Stockholm and was therefore Swedish property. Nevertheless, the wartime situation made the Nobel Committee's regular activities difficult to conduct, and so there would not be any Nobel Prizes awarded for 1940, 1941, or 1942, and no ceremony until 1944, when a special one was held in New York City. This gosh dang world war just really disrupting everybody's lives, even the Nobel Peace Prizes, which you don't really think about, I guess. But uh, yeah, that is what's going on while these comics are coming out. It's kind of crazy to think, you know, you could go watch the Rangers win the Stanley Cup, and then you could go buy Adventure Comics number 50 and read all about Our Man. It's kind of fun, isn't it, to think about. But enough about the real world. Let's get into the fiction with Adventure Comics number 50, released April 9th, 1940, with a cover date of May 1940. In this issue, Our Man and Sandman. With no debuts, just two standard stories of the two uh, mans. Sandman, Our Man. Let's get into the Our Man issue. The Our Man I issue story was uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Bernard Bailey. So let's get into it. Uh, it begins with the standard blurb uh, about TikTok Tyler, uh, the absolute worst nickname uh, that I've encountered here in the golden age. It doesn't even make any sense. Is is he? A, he's not a clockmaker. He is just a, a coward chemist. So why is his nickname TikTok Tyler? Uh, the Hour Man makes sense, uh, although as a superhero name, it kind of gives away his sort of whole shtick. But it does this blurb talking about how TikTok Tyler, the Hour Man, has become 
you know, for the lawless, a name to fear, for the law abiding, a name to be loved, all this kind of stuff. And then it says, yet neither his many friends or his many foes know that the hour man is actually a mere or a meek, mild chemist named Rex Tyler. But it's, his superhero name is TikTok Tyler the hour man. So what they think is that's his first name. Hi, my name's Tyler. Or my name is TikTok Tyler. It's, I'm, I have no relation to Rex Tyler, the chemist. Uh, and it talks about Miraclo. It's his one-hour drug thing that gives him strength and stuff. So I'll say, just like last Hour Man story a, a few episodes ago, or I think maybe it was only a couple episodes, episodes ago, episode 9, uh, this story is pretty flimsy. It starts out with Rex Tyler getting a letter because as we know from, I think, probably the first Hour Man story, he has put into the newspaper an ad saying, like, hey, I'm the Hour Man, and I'll do stuff for you, you know, good stuff, I'll thwart evil, and all that kind of stuff. So he gets a letter from James Karen, who is the owner of a racehorse uh, named Bluebell. And he goes and meets Mr. Karen, but this is the part that gets kind of confusing, the person that I'm presuming, because I've been given no other clues, is Rex Tyler, says this. He says, Mr. Tyler asked me to get some information from you, Mr. Karen. So I don't know if he's given Mr. Karen a, like an alias or something. But also, again, his identity is out in the open. So that blurb about how his f friends and foes don't know his identity is uh, a straight up lie. Uh, but uh, I digress. We'll, we'll move on. Uh, Mr. Karen says, you know, oh, so he'll help us with the, help me with these gangsters who are trying to get, uh, control of part of his racehorse Bluebell, uh, in order to, uh, win the winnings when, when the horse wins, along with putting bets on the horse. I don't know why they couldn't just put bets on the horse in the first place and then win because it's, this horse is, you know, slated to be beating the favorite. Uh, which I guess would make it the favorite. It doesn't make a lot of sense, okay? Let's just let's just put that on the table here. It does. This doesn't make a lot of sense. The whole plot. It's an hour man story. They tend to do that. Also, in the, I, I sorry, this is a wild change of uh, direction, but uh, on the front page of this story, hour man's holding a gun, which I don't think he's ever done before. I don't know if. Bailey just forgot like our man's whole shtick, but he doesn't ever carry a gun, but he's like holding a gun straight up. Uh, but sorry, that just jumped out at me uh, just now. And I was like, wow, that's weird. Uh, but then Rex Tyler says, um, I'm sure he will help. Racing when run honestly is truly the sport of kings. When run dishonestly, it becomes a blemish on the face of all sports. Bro, oof, I hate to tell you about horse racing and its uh, reputation vis-a-vis -vis a blemish. Uh, tell that to all the horses, you know? <laughs> hmm. Okay, we'll move on. Karen explains that this this Bates gang, this gang run by Nick Bates, uh, giving a bad name to Nick's, uh, I, I take offense to that, has learned that Bluebell is a dark horse candidate to, to win the race. Uh, and... They want to buy a part of this horse and so they can win a part of the uh, share of the $150,000 purse. 
and at the same time make all the bets they can. And uh, Rex Tyler says, it's a nasty racket. And I personally say, well, that's a ridiculous thing. Why not just make bigger bets? Just then, who should bust in but Nick Bates and his, uh, his bros, his gang, and they're basically... They're, they're coming to do the extortion. They're coming to say, hey, give us a part ownership of this horse or we're, you know, going to rough you up. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have you sleeping with the fishes, you know, gang stuff. And Karen says no. And um, Rex Tyler, of course, is a big coward. Uh, and so he doesn't fight back. And they get beaten up by the gang and are sent to the hospital. Uh Rex Tyler and James Karen, they wake up and they say, wow, or Tyler says, wow, these are really dangerous men. Maybe you should, you know, sell them the horse because I'm a big coward. And uh, James Karen says, what? Are you crazy? What would the hour man say if he heard you? And then, of course, the comic has to tell us that, not realizing that meek Rex Tyler is the hour man. Uh, James Karen calls in the reporters to kind of get this story blasted out as a part as a sort of a form of protection but also a form of fighting back against these gangsters uh nick bates and his gang see it it says the daily express says thugs beat up racing owner wanted in it wanted an interest in bluebell and which i mean is not an, uh, an illegal thing like straight up like hey i'd like to buy part ownership of this horse from you here's some money but they didn't want to do that obviously they wanted it for free which is you know, uh, not cool. Nick Bates then comes up with the idea that now that it's out in the open about Bluebell and stuff, that the reporters and everything will be watching him closely. So, you know, the odds will, I don't know, do something. They'll, they'll lower the odds so that people betting on it make less money. Uh, so there goes that. So instead, they're going to bet on the favorite, Faraway, and uh, sabotage Bluebell uh, so that they don't win. And so it's like, that's, you know, that's a, that's a fine plan, I guess. It's, a, it's actually part of the plan uh, for the movie The Killing. Uh, it's a pretty good film. The next morning, Karen and Rex Tyler get out of the hospital. And Rex Tyler says that he's going to leave Karen and, and go see our man and, and get him to help uh, Mr. James Karen. And uh, just then, members of the Nick Bates gang are uh, attempt to kidnap both of these men. Rex Tyler ducks out of the way and runs away like a coward. And uh, James Karen is not afraid, and he gets kidnapped. We then cut to the car carrying James Karen and the gangster. Gangsters, I should say. And they're driving down a Long Island road. So that kind of puts this geographically where it's at. It's in the New York area. And they are driving down this road, and they push James Karen out of this car uh, and leave him for dead. Speeding car and uh, hitting the ground typically don't go well together. Uh, we then cut to Tyler. He has returned to uh, the laboratory. I can't remember where he works. It's some, you know, chemical company. And his boss is mad at him because he was involved with that news story. I don't know why his boss would care that much about what he does on his off time. And Rex Tyler says, I was only trying to sell Karen horse lotion. Okay, I don't know what that is. Is it lotion for horses? Lotion made out of horses? Lotion that will turn you into a horse? I don't know. Uh, his boss thinks, huh, horse lotion, that's about your speed. Get back to work or I'll fire you. 
and he's going to go to the races because that's all the talk. And he expects uh, Tyler to be working when he gets back. All right, so you get to go to the races in the middle of the day, but Rex Tyler is supposed to just be working all day? All right, okay, that seems fair. Psh, bourgeoisie. Uh, the chief leaves, the chief of the laboratory leaves, and Rex Tyler says, oh, gosh, I've only got a half hour before the races start. I better get going. Even though he doesn't really know anything that's going to happen. He has no reason to go to the the races or anything. Um, but uh, he's going to go to the races and, and all that kind of stuff. He hears over the radio about uh, James Karen uh, being beaten to death. He wasn't beaten to death unless you count uh, the road beating him to death uh, or near to death. And he's got a 50-50 chance to recover. Good to know. Um, and that's the last, uh, spoiler alert, that's the last we'll see of James Karen. Uh, just in this comic, he just doesn't show up again. Uh, Rex Tyler turns and changes into his Our Man costume, takes his miracle pill, and runs to the races. Or, should I say, races to the races. Ah, that felt good. Uh, the race is about to start. We see people making bets. Uh, no indication uh, whether or not these are Nick Bates gang members making bets or just regular people making bets. Uh, so uh, not not important. Our man finds a couple of the gang members and gets the information about where's where Nick Bates is. And he's at the three-quarter post, which, if you know anything about horse racing, is the three-quarter mark of... A race, uh, I think. I also don't know anything about racing. It just makes sense. So uh, egg on my face if it means something else, like three-quarter of a mile or something. So we cut to the three-quarter post, and Nick Bates is there, and he's got a camera, and he says, now when Bluebell comes by, a bullet from this phony camera will finish him, killing the horse and making sure that he doesn't win. Obviously, you can't win if you are dead. That's just That's how any game works. You can't win Monopoly if you are dying. If you are died. If you're dead at the table. Uh, Our man catches up to, I guess not Nick Bates, because this guy says, Nick, help, help. So this wasn't Nick Bates. Uh, but Nick Bates comes out behind uh, the, pu- the fence or a bush and hits Our Man in the back of the head. The other gang member shoots uh, Bluebell, but it doesn't hit Bluebell. It hits the jockey, uh, and the jockey is able to hold on to Bluebell, and uh, Bluebell fat passes the uh, finish line first, winning the race, which I will say seems a little bit far-fetched because I feel like a, a jockey actively holding himself up and you know kind of maintaining a good center of balance um, like that would be much easier on a horse than dead weight just kind of hanging over its back because it does it it looks like just a dead body hanging over a horse so um i think of anything in this story that's probably the most far-fetched not the man who takes a pill and gets superpowers for an hour the um our man then drags nick bates to the police and uh, obviously does the thing that all superheroes do and say i think you'll be interested to hear this man's story talk or do i and and nick bates says i'll talk only don't hit me again Again, extortion that, uh, you know, maybe this one's fine because he didn't force him to write it out or anything, but the police will will get his uh, confession without 
beating him, I would presume it's 1940s. It's 1940, so maybe not. Our man rushes back to the lab with only minutes to spare because he's only got an hour, as we know. And then this part, this last panel, it, it just it boggles my mind why a boss would say this to an employee. So it says, later, after his boss has returned from the races to the laboratory, uh, Rex Tyler's boss says, and they say he wiped out the whole mob. Why don't you have that kind of courage? And Rex Tyler says, I, I wish I had, sir. What kind of, th- why would you say that to an employee? Who cares? You are a chemical company. You're like, you don't need your employees to be like, fighting robbers and you know stopping bank robberies it, it doesn't make any sense it's the most ridiculous thing ever it's ugh, it just it just boggled my mind when i read that i was like what okay if my boss said that to me i'd be like excuse me that is none of your business my level of, of bravery but uh yeah that's the hour man story and uh i gotta say not not much better than um than last uh, issue, uh, Adventure Comics number 49, not, not much better, a little bit more coherent, there's like, they're not just stealing some sort of vague scientific discovery, they're, you know, fixing a horse race, essentially, so, uh, so fine, fine, I mean, every book can have all bangers, you know, sometimes Zatara is, is, is nonsensical in action comics, and sometimes Crimson Avenger is in detective comics, every book has to have that one that's like, huh, well, that was weird. And I guess for right now, it's Our Man in, in Adventure Comics. But uh, let's move on to the one with a little bit more coherent stories, Sandman. Uh, Sandman, this time around, was uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Craig or Krieg Flessel. So let's get into the story this week. It starts off with the Sandman driving a leisurely drive in the countryside uh, in full costume. We don't know why just cuz and he sees a hit and run accident in front of him he chases after the driver and uh you know gets side by side him along the road and tells him to pull over well he does right into a tree the sandman gets out of his car and goes and checks on the driver and he's like at first he's like hey i'm gonna show you what your recklessness did but then he realizes wait this dude's dead he's been shot it's like well that's weird uh, and so the Sandman runs back to the road and checks on the other man. He says, oh, he's looking mighty quiet as well. Has he been shot? And he has. He's been killed. And so the Sandman's like, well, that's funny. A dead man dumped in the road, run over by a runaway car with a dead man at the wheel. Very interesting. The Sandman calls up the police as he is an upstanding citizen. Ignore the fact that he is a vigilante and tells them what's up. Uh, but before the police get there, he leaves, of course, because he is a wanted criminal um, for criminal activities. He returns to the uh, Wesley Dodds estate, since he is Wesley Dodds. And when he arrives in his home, he notices something funny. There's a light on in his room. And he lives alone, without even a butler. So, or a butler that we've seen. So, Sandman walks up the stairs and, uh, with his trusty gas gun, gasses whoever is in his room. So he's like, get your hands up. And he's like, oh no, it's you. And who do you think it is? That's right. It's Diane Belmont, the sort of love interest, pseudo love interest of Wesley Dodds and Sandman. She previous, He previously uh, 
saved her and told her about her real biological father, the district attorney of whatever city this is. And so he accidentally has gassed Diane, so she passes out as as everyone does when they get hit with the gas gun. And when she's she awakes, she tells him that her father's life is in danger. So she gives Sandman the rundown. Last night, two men escaped from prison. Uh, two men that her father put away uh, some years ago, and they have sworn to kill him. Uh, over the radio, she heard about the hit and run. The two uh, the two men uh, that w- one was run over and the other one was dead in his car. The the ones that Sandman found. And it turns out that those two men are from the jury that put these two criminals away. So Diane needs Sandman's help. So Sandman and Diane get into the Sandman mobile to go check out the accident site for clues. Uh, at, you know, Sandman just said, I'll leave it to the police the first time around. But now that it has something to do with Diane and her father, he is going to... Uh, lend his expertise in solving crimes uh, to to the task. Uh, so they hop in the car, and on the way to the scene, Diane tells him that the two uh, escaped criminals are named Tuffy and Limpy. Why? Why do this? Why are the criminals, why do the criminals have such stupid nicknames? Hi, I'm Limpy. All right. Do you have a limp? No. Well, why, why are you named that? Or do you have a limp? Yes. Okay, well, that's like the most un unique nickname ever like why even give them nicknames it's dumb it's dumb and it's it makes it so much more silly than it needs to be T- uh, i'm i'm toughy all right stop all right sorry so they get to the scene and uh wouldn't you know it there's two clues right next to each other a footprint and a bullet casing so that's great uh sandman mentions something about a ballistics expert identifying the murder gun from the bullet casing but that's all we hear about that we don't ever see him going to this ballistics expert or anybody being a ballistics expert it's really weird to mention that and just be like eh whatever we'll do it off panel and then never talk about it uh so they follow the footprints into the woods uh a ways and sandman tells diane to get the car and bring it around to you know wherever they're at and hop, and Sandman hops on, and they follow the trail, because these are, like, really, really prominent footprints, I guess, so you can follow them in a car. And they go down to the waterfront. There's a, a lake or a, maybe even just the ocean uh, right there. And Sandman sees a shack uh, at the end of a dock. And he's like, oh, I bet they're in there. And he goes in there, and he's ready, and there's nobody in there. And uh, there's a candle burning as a sort of, like, a trap. But here's the thing. It's not a trap because Sandman just leaves. He says, this place is deserted. It's so weird. Why'd they do this? And then and then he hops back in the car and uh, he heads back to the city because he realizes that Tuffy and Limpy um, are going to go after the district attorney, like they always said. So now that I'm thinking about it, why did he and Diane spent all this time looking for clues at this crash site. If they always knew, like she came to him and be like, they're going to come after my father. Okay. Well, let's go to where your father's not. Okay. So, yeah, so they're going, the bad guys are going after their father of Diane, just like we thought. 
Uh, there's a scene, there's a few panels of a scene where uh, Sandman is putting the pedal to the metal, as they say, and uh, it looks like, if I'm reading correctly, it's very, very blurry. Let's see if that's 20, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100, and... 180 miles an hour or 160 miles an hour. Uh, like I said, it's very blurry. Very fast car. Uh, and the motorcycle cop that he goes by can't catch him. But he calls ahead and has some other policemen waiting on the edge of town. And Sandman stops. And the police officer comes up and says, Got your license? And he says, Wait a minute, you're the Sandman. And the Sandman's like, Now, like, hey, chill someone's trying to kill the district attorney. And so they're like, oh my gosh, uh, let's escort him into town. So they do. The police escort Sandman into town. And they run into the uh, district attorney's office. Uh, Sandman, rather than using the door and the stairs, jumps through the window and then bursts into his office just as, um, let's see, so that's, no, uh, so Tuffy, as soon as Tuffy comes in. Oh yeah, because his name is Tuffy Tonger. Uh, which, great alliteration, who are you, Stan Lee? Um, and the Sandman bursts in at the same time, and Tuffy turns his gun on Sandman, and Sandman t- turns his gun on Tuffy, and they both shoot each other. Sandman, of course, only ga- gasses Tuffy, but Sandman gets shot in the leg. I think this is like the first time he's taken any sort of real damage, and it's, it's, it's quite a big deal. Tuffy falls out of the window that he's standing by, and outside is Limpy, uh, who we don't ever know, find out if he has a limp or anything, uh, or if his name is Limpy, just like Tuffy's name is. Uh, so um, so there's that, and uh, T- uh, Limpy drags Tuffy away, and the district attorney is like, Sandman, you're wounded, you need help, and Sandman says, no, if the cops, you know, see me like this they'll, they'll want to see my face and they can't they can't see his face so he has to go after the gunman and so then he does he goes up onto the roof which is where Tuffy has gone but we then see not Tuffy Limpy but then we see that Limpy's not like dragging a body what happened to Tuffy did you just, just leave him it's like what way to way to you know have your partner's back so uh Sandman is, is running after Limpy, but he's just, he's so wounded that he can't make it, and uh, Limpy gets away. We then cut to Diane and her father, and Diane's yelling at her father, like, oh, why did he run away? Because you wouldn't give him police protection, even though he saved your life more than once. And her dad's like, but he's a criminal. And she says, no, he's not a criminal. He helps the good and harms the bad. And you call him a criminal. And, of course, um, her being a woman... He says to her, you're just getting excited. Run, go home. It's like, all right. No, I won't. I can't go home, says Diane. The Sandman may need me. He's wounded. And she's right, because he has collapsed on the roof of the building. And he tells her that Limpy and Tuffy got away and that they have to go after them. So Diane helps him down to the ground floor. Then she runs and gets the Sandman mobile. And they hop in. Diane drives so that it's not suspicious to the police, because, I mean, obviously the Sandman's just like, a dude wearing a gas mask, and that's suspicious no matter where you're at. So they uh, head to this place called Ching Fu's Chop House in Chinatown because it's a known hangout spot of Limpy, which is such a silly thing. Like, if I was a criminal, which I'm not, just so that, you know, you're aware, I wouldn't have a set hangout spot because, like, then everyone will know where to go to find me. You know, I'm not going to go down to the bar 
every night as a criminal, I'm going to rotate. I'm going to have a bunch of different bars I go to. Like so many. Maybe maybe not even go to one twice. I'd be such a good criminal. But uh, I care about um, justice too much to be one. So don't don't worry about that. So they they pull up at uh, at Ching Fu's chop house, and uh, Sandman gets out and says, "Diane, you you just you know you stay here." And as the Sandman is you know walking up to the place, a guy, a Chinese guy, pulls a gun and says, "Olympia is expecting you." Actually, says he, he's expecting yous. Uh, and he says, "Get inside." And Sandman says, "I fell into your trap nicely, didn't you?" Um, and so Limpy has uh, this this guy with the gun tells Sandman. Limpy has the idea that if he gives the DA Sandman, that maybe he'll you know kind of pardon him or like go easy on him or something. So he, Sandman is brought into the room where Limpy is, and uh, Limpy says, "Hello there, Sandman. Surprised to see me, ain't ya?" And Sandman says, "Well, no, I I came here to see you on purpose." Like, that's my whole thing. And Limpy's like, well, none of your lip, wise guy. What I want to know is, who are you? And Limpy's about to try to take off Sandman's mask, his gas mask. And so the Sandman just freaking punches him straight in the face. And then he kicks another guy that's kind of, oh, maybe that's Tuffy. It's never, it's never indicated who this other guy is that he hits, but it must be Tuffy. He must have woken up from the gas. The Sandman then uses Limpy as a weapon uh, uh, to, like, knock Tuffy down and out. Like, he swings him around. Um, sort of like that scene in Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you've ever seen that. Uh, but instead of by his feet, it's by his head or shoulders. And then he gasses them both to uh, knock them out, and they are ready for the police. Uh, Diane then busts in and says, Sandman, we gotta go! And Sandman says, Diane, I'm so tired. Give me a chance. I need to rest. And Diane's like, you're delirious. I'm going to I'm gonna take a look at that shoulder. Oh, I thought he got shot in the leg. I guess he got shot in the shoulder. Um, so that's, that's good. Or bad. Uh, and he says, fine, but only after we call the police. I don't want Limpy and Tuffy to get away. And so Diane does. And then uh, he's going to go home and she's going to fix up that bullet wound and he's going to get some rest and he says you're not getting mixed up with this any further young lady really patronizing uh but she gets her way good job on you diane and we see wesley dodds and he is all patched up his shoulders all patched up and he's laying in bed uh with a cup of tea and diane's sitting there and uh Diane says, I'm going to have my dad grant you a pardon for all the crimes you are supposed to have committed. And Sandman says, I've never committed a crime in my life, but the underworld thinks so. And then we see the next day or, you know, the next morning uh, in the paper that the DA's offer offers a truce to Sandman if he will reveal his true identity. And he says, I can't do that. If I told the police who I am, the underworld would get me. They very, that very day, no thanks, Mr. District Attorney. The Sandman remains unknown, except to Diane, Diane Belmont. And that's the end. I'm not, the, not the worst one I've ever read. Uh, I've read a lot of worse stories. Uh, so it, it, Sandman, uh, getting a little help from Diane, getting shot, that's new. Um, using a man as a, as a cudgel, that's fun. Um, all, over, overall, pretty good Sandman story i think 
um, all, all things considered. Uh, so let's move on. Uh, and we will be moving on to Action Comics number 6, uh, released April 16th, 1940, with a cover date of June 1940. So, let's get into the Flash story for this issue, uh, like it has been for a while now, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Everett E. Hibbard. And I think his art is just only getting better, uh, I think. Uh, it's this, this, there's a lot of drawings in this one that's like, oh, that's very detailed and nice. It's good. So, uh, let's start off. It's, it's another Olympic year. 1940 was an Olympic year. That's true. Although the the games, which were originally slated to be uh, taking place in Japan in 1940, were rescheduled for Helsinki uh, in 1940 after the Sino-Japanese War uh, began in 1937. And then they were inevitably canceled uh, in 1940 in Helsinki because of World War II. Uh, so that's so that's kind of a fun little tidbit that this story ends up not actually, you know, the people in the story never actually got to go to Helsinki or Japan to do their Olympic runnings, and uh, it's it's very sad. Uh, so Jay Garrick and Joan Williams are at. Uh, they're attending a pre-Olympic game track meet, uh, qualifying, basically qualifying, qualifying track meet, Jesus. And some shenanigans are going to happen, of course. So Joan and Jay are reminiscing about when they went to college uh, at Western, and they're talking about Wally Stevens, who is from Western, and he's running the mile uh, in this one. And Joan comments that he hopes that, or she hopes that he wins. And a man walks up to her and says, you wouldn't want to bet on that, would you? And Jay's like, well, no. Um, well, we th he ought to win, first of all. And also, we don't gamble. And also, that gambling isn't allowed on these races, apparently, according to Jay. He says, mighty funny about that man. Gamblers aren't allowed around here. And so, he must have just been doing a little under-the-table uh, betting. So Joan trying to, you know, like brushes it off, just says, oh, he probably just wanted to pick up a dollar or two. Uh, but as the afternoon wears on, the Flash, Jay Garrick, becomes more and more suspicious of that gambler and these races as a whole. Four events have been run at this point, and all of the favorites have lost. And, but, and that's not, you know, favorites can lose. You know, someone can find an extra gear and, and, and beat a favorite, but to have that many favorites... Lose is suspicious because then it basically <laughs> makes it seem like anyone who knows anything about racing actually knows nothing. So uh, it is the start of the mile race qualifier. Wally Stevens gets into the lead. He's doing a great job. But suddenly, after two laps, he like starts to falter. And he's like grabbing at his chest, and he's sweating a lot. And Jay says to Joan, well, this is weird. Something's wrong. I better see what's you know going on. So he, you know, runs super fast, almost invisibly, and asks Stevens what's wrong. And he says his his lungs are bursting; they're on fire. And the Flash goes back to his seat and says that Stevens has been drugged, uh, and he, he'll swear on it. And he bets that so have a lot of other of the racers. So him and Jane, Jane, Joan are gonna go talk to the Western Athletic Union. Um, assistant commissioner j edwin dorn 
uh, because uh, Joan is the secretary to the Western Athletic Union. So she's a part of the association that puts on these events. So Jay and Joan come up with a plan uh, before Joan goes in to talk to uh, Mr. Dorn. And she goes in. She says, Mr. Dorn? And she says, And he says, yes, come in. And she informs him uh, that this is a blank sort of racing form for, or like applicant form for Jay Garrick, former football player at Western, that is going to try out for the Olympics. I don't know if you can just walk on into qualifiers. Maybe you can. I don't know. While this is happening, Jay goes and investigates in the dressing rooms, in the locker rooms, and all the uh, the racers. He sees Stevens in there, and he talks to him. He says, "Hi, my name's Jay Garrick. You know what what happened to you? You know." And and Stephen says, "Just as I got going, good, and started to perspire. I felt funny all of a sudden. There was a burning in my chest, and I couldn't breathe." And Jay takes his running shirt, you know, uniform. To, to test it for drugs and Stevens gives it to him and as the Flash is returning to uh, Mr. Doran's office the man who asked him and Joan to gamble that morning is going into the office and Joan as he walks in says oh it's you and, and he says yeah it's me lady I told you Stevens wouldn't win didn't I and as Joan leaves the uh, Mr. Doran says you fool keep your mouth shut about these things and then this gambler man, ugh, he says, Aw, oh, she's just a dumb dame. How dare you, sir? Joan Williams is no dumb dame. She went to college. She's a smart lady. And it says that. It says, but the dumb dame, quote-unquote, is pretty smart. And she tells uh, Jay that the gambler went in to see Dorn, um, and, and it seems like something crooked is going on here. And Jay says, I saw him too. Wait here, I'm going to find out what's going on. So Jay rushes into the room uh, invisibly, you know, running so fast he opens the door. And Mr. Doran yells at the gambler, like, I thought you, you know, why didn't you shut that door? And so then Doran shuts it. And the Flash is behind the couch watching um, like a little creep. And they are talking uh, to each other about the take from all of the betting. Over 100 Gs, that's 100 grand if you're not aware of what a G is. Uh, and so, because all the smart money was on the favorites, and they cleaned up uh, by betting on the maybe like the second favorite, or you know some somebody else, uh, or someone of their choosing, if they did in fact drug the runners. Uh, and so next week is the Eastern Championships, and they're going to be even bigger, and they're going to make even more cash, more cashola. And then the Flash exits, and... Mr. Dorn says, I closed that door myself this time. And and the gambler says, is this place haunted? You know, classic The Flash. Everyone always thinks he's a ghost. Uh, that night, The Flash, in his laboratory, because he is a scientist, he's a smarty smart, he tests the shirts for drugs, and guess what? Yes, they were drugged. With what? It's a, it's a power of, I don't know, but it's a powerful drug that slows the breathing when absorbed by the body. So when Steven started perspiring, his pores opened and took the drug into his system, which is, I think, I think scientifically sound. I'm not sure. I'm not a scientist. So, you know, the next, next week or whenever he said that Eastern Championships were next week. So, yeah, so it's been a week. 
and it's the day of the Eastern Championships uh, or qualifiers or whatever. Championship makes it seem like you had to do a bunch of races before this, but obviously Jay just, you know, just signed up. So qualifier feels like a better word. Uh, so then we have some, you know, fun little fun times of Jay running all these races and winning by like insane numbers, insane times. And this announcer reporter guy is just constantly freaking out about what Jay's doing, which like fair, like this dude is running, you know, breaking every single record that is possibly, you know, around at the moment, um, at every single race. Uh, so he, he has won every single race qualifier in um, of the day because he's doing that so that he can ruin the gamblers because since they've drugged everybody except presumably one person and they all bet on that person, maybe it's the underdog, you know, something like that. And so if Jay wins, then none of them win, if you understand, you know, because nobody bet on him because nobody knows who he is. We then get to the mile run. And that's Stevens's race uh, because I guess you do both the Western and the Eastern Championships. I don't know. Um, or maybe he's like, oh, I didn't win the Western, so now I want to try to win the Eastern to qualify. I don't know how this works. This it could all be made up. Um, but so the the race starts, and of course Jay gets out to you know an insane lead, uh, and everybody's sprinting, everybody's running, going crazy, perspiring, and then suddenly the flash turns around, goes in reverse, goes back to the start. And then starts again. And so everyone's, all the other runners are sweating like crazy, trying to trying to keep up, trying to run as fast. And Stevens has been drugged again. He's sick. And uh, Jay brings him to a doctor. And while the race is still going on, uh, so the announcer's like, Garrick has stopped running entirely. He's watching them take Stevens off in a stretcher. Well, the field is almost home. That lets Garrick out. Wait a minute. And he's running again, and he runs three, four, four laps, and uh, beats everybody that was that spent this whole, whole entire time while he was waiting for Stevens to get taken away by the doctors. He wins, and uh, basically the the announcer he's just oh man he's done he's 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 gonna die from all of this excitement. And uh, we then cut to. Uh, the gambling man and Mr. Dorn, they're, you know, kind of lamenting like, oh, no, we've lost everything. Our entire bankroll were ruined. He's not human. Uh, and then a delegation of foreign sports representatives uh, call uh, on uh, Chairman Dorn. I think it's Dorn. Or maybe the actual chairman. Uh, we don't see his face. So it could be it could be Mr. Dorn or it could be the actual like head head honcho of the Olympic committee and they're all just like oh we concede all track races you know all all you know the running ones because he'll beat us and it's like why even do that you know why why embarrass ourselves so in another part of the stadium okay so here's mr dorn so that means that that was the head honcho of the the olympic committee they're like we got to take out this jay garrett guy he sucks and he's ruining us you know we have a little we could we could maybe turn it around if we uh we get rid of him so they send off some goons to uh shoot jay garrick as he comes out of the locker room and jay garrick sees that and this is what uh, this is what i'm talking about of the art it's a very detailed drawing of jay garrick's face it's probably the most detailed we've ever seen his face 
in any of uh, these issues. Uh, so that's good on good on Everett Hibbard uh, for stepping up that art game. Uh, but he sees these goons, and he's like, oh, I'm going to have some fun with him like the Flash always does. And he says, first he tricks one into thinking that the other one's, you know, seeing things. And then he sort of does like, hey, I'm over here. And then they turn around to try to shoot him. And he's like, wait, I'm over here. And uh, then he, you know, sort of does a figure eight around them and then uh, runs away. And they, you know, cry to their boss like, oh, we're supposed to shoot him. We can't even see him. Uh, That night, uh, Jay Garrick has asked Stevens to come by his apartment to talk. And this is where Jay Garrick uh, reveals that he is the Flash, even though, as we know, he does not wear a helmet. So, or not, he does wear a helmet. He does not wear a mask. Uh, So I don't know why anyone wouldn't know that that's Jay Garrick if they already know Jay Garrick. So Jay Garrick has brought Stevens to his apartment to ask him about his uniforms and all the track runners uniforms, who handles them, who could have access to them. And he says, Jonesy, the trainer, and the flash deduces that Jonesy's probably being paid off by the gamblers to, you know, dope the shirts so that they can win. Uh, It's pretty straightforward. So he runs off to Jonesy's uh, apartment and then proceeds to act like his conscious conscience and to like to make him feel guilty. But here's the thing. The flash does this by running around him so fast that he's invisible classic flash move. But he does this for two hours and he's just constantly saying, you did it. You did it. You're the trainer. You did it. You drug the shirts. And it's like, dude, you're psychologically torturing this man. This has got to go against the Geneva convention or something. Um, this is a crime what you're doing. The Jonesy confesses, obviously, after two hours. I would have confessed after 20 minutes if I had done it, because like, I'm not sitting there for two hours. That's some strong will on Jonesy. He says, yes, I did it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to write this letter. I'm going to send it off, this confession, uh, and it'll make me feel better, the guilt. But as he's writing it, or as he finishes it, the flash takes it. And he says, I'm going to show this to Dorn, see what he has to say about it. So he does. He goes to assistant commissioner Dorn's house and he says this is Jonesy's confession do you want to confess too well I don't care if you do or not you're gonna it's me the flash Uh, and he always talks he talks about how gambling ruins clean sports it's bad all that kind of stuff classic I agree I find gambling to be um I I guess uh, it's thought about very flippantly even though a lot of people have a lot of problems with it so uh so he does. He, he writes his own confession. And then the next day, the state, I guess now it's a state sporting union. I don't know. The, these All these, you know, commissions and committees and unions and stuff, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, yeah, a special meeting is called because two confessions came in about doping at the Olympic tryouts. But the bad kind, the kind where um, it's against someone's will. I guess, the re- I guess regular doping is also bad. Uh, if you're doping to, like, be better at the sport. That's also bad. Uh, that ruins the integrity of the sport. So, uh, in the in in the dressing rooms, uh, during the uh, final day of the races, uh, the all the racers are like, hey, none of us were a part of that crooked deal, Flash. Thanks for, thanks for doing, uh, thanks for doing your part and helping us out. And, uh, Wally Stevens wins his mile run. He's gonna go to the Olympics. Just kidding, he's not. They get canceled. 
And uh, Joan and Jay are talking afterwards. And Joan says, this will be the best Olympic team the U.S. ever had. Thanks to you, Flash. I don't know why she refers to him as Flash. They're like in a relationship. It could be Jay. Jay Garrick, my lover. Um, but she asks him, why didn't you keep trying out for the Olympics? And he says, well, my speed is unnatural, Joan. It wouldn't have been fair. All these men and women, they're training for so long and so for for their entire lives, basically, to be fast. And uh, it'd be unsportsmanlike. And you know what? Un-American for, my, for me to use my scientific gift to, to win. So that's the end. A nice little, nice little moral of the story at the end. Or not moral of the story, but a little moral, morality lesson at the end there. And then, of course, it's like, you know, next month, another exciting adventure of The Flash. And that's The Flash story. Pretty good, I think. Um... It's kind of funny. Obviously, they didn't know when they wrote this that the Olympics were going to get canceled, but they had to think that maybe something was going to happen. There was a war going on. The war's been going on in Europe for like at least a year. So kind of funny. But uh, yeah, let's move on. Hawkman in this issue was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Sheldon Moldoff. And uh, it's actually a continuation from the end of last issues story in flash comics number five with uh ione craig and uh and the the adventures in the desert so uh, we last left hawkman he was flying ione craig away from uh the city alumet uh of the assassin cult and uh hawkman's wings aren't working anymore uh, they flying with a person for this long is they are you know busted or weakened or something later on he does something to them to make it seem like they're mechanical i mean i thought they were nth metal uh but uh i guess i guess maybe they're mechanical uh it's been so long since i've uh, read the first hawkman that i've forgotten but he uh puts ioni on the ground and is uh, going to go scout to find a landmark to see if they can uh, get to a city and get passage on a boat or something to get back to America. But while he is up there, a band of uh, Arab uh, raiders come and find Ione, and they uh, get her. And I will say, again, this is this is the second issue in a row where uh, Moldov has drawn Ione in a very, like, scantily clad outfit she's very she's very un- uncovered which is uh, feels strange in a comic book of this era but um you know whatever so they capture her to uh, enslave her and sell her into slavery uh, in the slave markets and uh, hawkman returns and finds hoof prints and uh and begins to track them uh ioni meanwhile is brought to the city of, it's a fake city, so I gotta find the name. It's like Istanbul or something. Like, not like Istanbul, but like Istan. There's a Q in there too. It's, it, I don't know, it's, it's, they had to come up with a fake name, so uh, let's just go with it. Uh, they dress her in the finest silks to get her ready for a sl- the slave market. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the slavery auction is going, is happening. And uh, it's going great. And it's Ioni's turn to be sold into slavery. And 
and uh, Hawkman swoops down, and then he's they they say something kind of uh, I'm gonna go with racist. Uh, he says, blowing through a whistle in his helmet, the Hawkman produces a shrill screaming cry. Terrified, the Arabs scatter. Okay, uh, they're just they're they're not white, so they're afraid of loud noises. I get it. Okay, Hawkman swoops down, grabs Ioni. Um, and I should say, I meant to mention this back when she got captured, but I'll mention it now. Ioni is a uh, a secret agent, like a special agent for the U.S. government. Is she just in- completely incapable of doing anything for herself? Like, last time she couldn't do anything herself, this time she gets easily captured. Does she not have, like, a gun? Does she not have anything? It's just, I don't know, man. Uh, okay, uh, so Hawkman swoops away with her, but uh, one of the guards uh, lassos him and is, uh, you know, brought up into the air with them. Um, but flying with that much weight on uh, is quite strenuous for Hawkman's wings, and he can't carry them very far. So after landing on the ground, the guard that was, you know, dangling from a rope uh, comes at Hawkman from behind with a knife. Like, did Hawkman not notice that there was a guy? hanging on a rope from his body, and, like, when he lands, wouldn't he be like, I gotta deal with this dude oh, right away? Uh, but don't worry, Hawkman, you know, spins around. Maybe he was maybe he was just doing that on purpose. He was keeping his back to him on purpose to lull him into a false sense of security. So he gets him, and then he does do a, uh, a death grip, and uh, with his tremendous strength, which I don't know why he has tremendous strength. He doesn't have any powers. But he hits the gym, clearly eats his protein he uh does he does snap this guard's neck so that's a that's a murder that's a murder then uh a band of uh riders uh swoop down onto the hawkman he you know dis dehorses one and gets on the horse but the horse trips uh and the hawkman falls off and is captured in the process and he is brought back to the city uh, and put into the dungeon along with an, another guy and this man is major brent he is from some army uh the people that eventually come in and rescue them spoilers are british so maybe he's part of the british army but it doesn't say and and major brent sounds british doesn't it just like just from the name uh he w- his entire division was slaughtered by uh, Sheba, uh, Queen of the Desert, is what she calls herself. And uh, Major Brent wants the Hawkman to get them out of here. Uh, Hawkman says, nah, they're weakened because of flying with too much weight. And then he he just, he has to uh, correct the adjuster fan, and they're good as new. So, all right. That then begs the question, like, what powers the wings? If it's, like, a motor, are they gas-powered? They're very small. Are they nth metal-powered? Like, does the nth metal do something to make it so the wings do stuff? I don't know. Hawkman's so confusing all the gosh-dang time. We then cut to uh, the sort of sheik of this city, and he is talking. His name is Abdullah, and he is talking to Sheba, quote-unquote queen of the desert, and she wants Hawkman. He can keep the girl, but she wants Hawkman. She finds him interesting. And he says, fine, begrudgingly. He says, fine. And Hawkman is then brought 
to Shiva, but before he leaves the dungeon, Major Brent tells him, um, if you can get free, the army column is two miles beyond Aden. Tell them Shiva is an Istanyulk. Yeah, so it's spelled I-S-T-A-N-Y-U-L-Q for whatever reason. Uh, so Hawkman is brought to Shiva, and the first thing she asks him is, can you fly with those wings? Are you from the army? And he says, whoa, one question at a time. I am not from the army, and I can fly. And he just flies out a window. They didn't They didn't do anything to like keep him you know, earthbound. He just flies right out a window. Uh, so he has escaped, and he then flies the two miles beyond a den to uh, the army column, and uh, an army man says, By Jove, there's a gigantic bird approaching us. And a Hawkman says, don't, don't shoot. I'm from Major Brent. You know, he's alive. And Sheba, the queen of the desert, is, and her army uh, is in Istanyolk. Uh, so, like, go there and, and deal with that. So they, so the two Brit, very British army men said, by Jove again, let's do it. They do. So they, uh, they, they, they're, they're in the process of, you know, they're going to attack Istanyolk in a bit as soon as it takes them however long it takes them to mobilize and get the two miles but back in Istanyolk Sheba is mad because Hawkman did fly away she didn't like that she wanted him to stay because she loves him so she puts Major Brent and Ione Craig into a sort of arena and uh, six three lions on them so, or six, sorry, six. Uh, there's only three in the picture, but there are six. And it's very much like that scene in, well, probably Gladiator, but also in uh, Star Wars, Episode Two, Attack of the Clones, where uh, where Anakin and uh, uh, Obi-Wan and uh, Padme are all tied to poles. It's very similar to that. Hawkman has returned to Istanyolk after uh, notifying the army. And he's, you know, stealthing around trying to find Ione and, and maybe Major Brent as well. And he grabs a bow. So he's, you know, locked and loaded, ready for battle. He uh, hears some lions roaring and a crowd, you know, cheering. And he finds the arena and uh, kind of flies down into it, sees Ione and Major Brent and the lions. He picks off uh, a couple lions uh, with the bow and arrow. And then uh, drops to the middle of the arena. Uh, and Major Brent tells him that they are locked up, you know, obviously. And so you need the key. Sheba probably has the keys. Uh, at that moment, the army has uh, uh, laid siege to Istanyolk. They are, they are taking control of the city. Uh, with like a little, like a very funny little like car where they're like laying down in this car and they're shooting gas out, or maybe that's a gun. I don't know. It's, it looks really silly. They're called a small but highly mechanized army. So that's good. Um, in Hawkman's search for Sheba, he finds Abdullah the Sheik and uh, does just straight up kill him. So much for uh, paying for his crimes, other than, I guess, with his life. Uh, so that's that's good, I guess, or bad. Depending on your opinions on the death penalty. He then finds Sheba, uh, Queen of the Desert, 
and grabs her, puts her up on a really high tower, and uh, says, you wait here. I got to go save my friends. Hawkman then swoops down into the arena and stops a, a big lion from mauling Major Brent while he's still locked up with the pole, and he uses a knife to just repeatedly stab this lion to death. Uh, I feel kind of bad for the lion. Like, I, I know he was going to kill Major Brent, but, like, he doesn't know any better. So um, the army then, you know, takes control of the city, and everyone's great, and they've captured Sheba, and, uh, and that is the end. Uh, a thrilling adventure of Hawkman, if I've ever seen one. Um, it was fine. It was fine as far as Hawkman stories go. Uh, I think it was a little bit more coherent than the last story. Uh, a little bit, at least. So that's good. Uh, so let's move on to a quick little summary of Johnny Thunder. As you know, we're not doing full recaps of Johnny Thunder just because his, he's not really a superhero uh, at this point in time. We'll talk about him when he joins up with the Justice Society in, I think, what are they called? All-Star Comics, I think. Uh, but we'll, right now we'll just you know do a little summary. So, uh, first of all, written by John B. Wentworth and drawn by Stan Ashmeyer, of course. Uh, Johnny is uh, on a hunting trip with his girlfriend Daisy and her father on a fox hunting trip, which I find <clears throat> bar- barbaric. Uh, but well, enough about my opinions. Uh, he's having trouble with his horse and falls behind. He uh, he finds the fox somehow, uh, accidentally, and uses his magic thunderbolt to make the fox talk. He protects the fox from uh, other hunters and hounds, uh, believing that with this discovery of a talking fox, because as you know, he doesn't know that he's doing these things, he um, is going to get fame and fortune, he stops the hounds from killing the fox, but uh, his thunderbolt powers wear off on the fox before he can get it to speak to Daisy and make his fame and fortune from it. Uh, so a goofy adventure for Johnny Thunder, uh, as per usual. Uh, and that is going to be the end of Flash Comics number six. So let's move on to... Action Comics number 25, our last issue of the episode. Uh, with Superman and Zatara in it, uh, it was released April 23rd, 1940, with a cover date of June 1940. So let's get into the Superman story for this issue. Uh, it was written by Jerry Siegel and drawn by Paul Cassidy. And let's talk about well, let's let's talk about the cover of Action Comics uh, number twenty five real quick because it does feature Superman, and I will say it it has him swooping down, uh, legs first, um, onto a speeding speedboat uh, in in the water. Uh, it looks like Lois is being captured, and I can't remember if that's something. I think that's something that happened in a previous Superman story, but it does not happen in this story, so I think it's quite interesting that it is the cover of this issue. Um, I guess it's mostly, it's not really at this point about the cover explaining what's going to be happening, it's more about catching people's eyes, and it's quite eye-catching, I will say, you know. But I'd be a little bit, uh, I guess, misled when I got inside the comic and be like, hey, there's no speedboat in this one. But, you know, comic book buyers were different back in the day. So, now that we've covered the cover, ha. Huh, uh, let's get into the actual story, like I said. Uh, it starts with uh, the first national bank uh, manager 
is sending out um, a big cash deposit, uh, maybe payroll or something, with a payroll messenger to a Mr. Galbraith. It's not important who Mr. Galbraith is or First National Bank. They're just part of the setup. Uh, And it needs to get to him within a half hour. Why? Don't ask questions. Uh, 45 minutes later, Mr. Galbraith is getting on the phone with uh, the First National Bank. being like, where is the messenger? Where is that cashola? And uh, the police are given an APB, an all-points bulletin, to look for this payroll messenger. And they find him just walking down the street casually. Uh, The police officers stop the man. They ask him, hey, are you this bank messenger that's supposed to be delivering this money? And he says, yeah, that's me. He's like, where's the money? And he's like, what? I I don't know. We then uh, cut to a little bit later at uh, police headquarters where they're, you know, kind of investigating this payroll messenger. Like, how could you have forgotten what happened to $50,000 in this bag that it was your entire job? And he's like, I don't know. I just, I remember leaving the bank and then uh, then I was confronted by the police. I don't remember anything else. Well, that's weird. Uh, the First National Bank person wants the, wants the messenger arrested because he's a thief. Uh, but we then move on to something that is occurring at the ex- exact same moment as this interrogation scene. A, a couple of, I guess, armored truck drivers is what they are. Uh, they're transporting money. The side of the truck is cut off. The, the name, it says maybe Print Express. I don't know. But um, they, they are transporting money. And they stop a police officer and say, hey, can you tell us who are we? Who am I? And the other guy said, yeah, we don't know who we are. Uh, the, the police officer opens up the back of the truck, and it's empty. And he's like, well, you, you boys better come along with me to police headquarters. Something suspicious is going on. We then cut to police headquarters, uh, where uh, Daily Planet star reporter Clark Kent is stopped from heading in. And he's like, hey, what's going on here? And uh, the, the police officer says, sorry, Clark, because, I mean, reporters and police officers there typically very close uh, because that's where a lot of reporters get sources and information from. He says, I can't let you in, commissioner's orders, no reporters today. Inside the police commissioner's office, the same man who was calling for the arrest of the payroll messenger is calling for the arrest of these two armored truck drivers uh, because they've clearly, you know, stole all this money. And uh, the police commissioner refuses. And he says he's refusing because this is not the first uh, case of amnesia coming from, you know, people transporting funds. So Clark Kent obviously overhears all this because he has Superman hearing. And he's like, oh, one in- interesting. This could make a great story. And he does. He writes it up. And this is a weird scene between him and um, George Taylor, the uh, editor of the Daily Planet. He says, here it is, George, or here it is, Taylor, the type of yarn you daydream about, a front-page sensation. And then George Taylor says, yeah, what kind of tripe are you handing me now? It's like, well, he's a star reporter. You send him out on everything. You are all constantly, like, singing his praises, but he hands you a story he's really excited about, and it's like, ugh, this has got to be tripe. Why? What is, what is up with these interactions between employers and their employees? It's so weird. But T- Taylor reads the story and is like, well, actually, this is actually pretty good. This is great. And they, they put on an, uh, an extra, which is a, an extra copy of the paper because new big news has broken. And the police are all wondering, like, hey, how did this get out? You're not supposed to, you're supposed to not let any reporters in. And the police officer, whose name we know is Pat, 
uh, he says, well, I didn't let any, none, none got past me at all. And uh, seeing this, a group of high, important, very important citizens come to the mayor and say, hey, you know, the city's getting really panicky, and that's bad for business. We want this mystery solved, or we want a new administration in charge, as if that would do anything. The mayor says, now, hey, just leave it to me. I'm going to get it solved. The police are on the case. They're very capable. Spoiler alert, they don't really do anything. We then cut to Clark, and having done a good day's work uh, with his story, says, now it's time to get a date with Lois, because this man does not know when to quit. He says, uh, what do you say to lunch, Lois? There's so much to talk about, of me and you and romance. And she says, sorry, I've arranged something way more important. I'm going to find out the identity of Superman, which good luck, lady. Uh, she says that she is going to Medini, the world's greatest hypnotist, and he claims he can reveal Superman's secret identity to her. I don't know how, but... Um, but he says that he can do that, and you would—you always have to trust a hypnotist. They're the most trustworthy person, people, on the planet. Clark is, of course, interested in this because he is Superman. And he's worried about his secret identity. But also, he's sort of made a connection in his brain. How did he not think of this? Hypnotism. These amnesiac guards and, and money transporters. And this Medini, the world's greatest hypnotist who we're just hearing about now. Uh, and so Clark changes into his uh, Superman costume while uh, sitting on a box of paper towels. It, it says on the side of the box, paper towels. It feels like a really weird detail, but it's kind of funny. He's like, ah, yes, the most comfortable seat to change into my Superman costume, paper towels. He then uh, follows Lois to Medini's mansion because apparently in this day and age, hypnotists make enough money to uh, afford mansions suspiciously. He lands, and two guards immediately attack him. He, of course, throws them off quite easily. He's Superman, and he lands them on the spikes of a gate. Now, I know what you're thinking. No, they did not get impaled. They got, uh, like, hung up by their jackets, like, uh, like, you, like Superman is a school bully, and they're nerds who he has given a wedgie to and then put on the back of, you know, like a fence post or something like that to give them atomic wedgies. But, I mean, just like... One very unprecise movement by Superman, and they could have just been impaled on these spikes at this gate. Uh, so that's that's uh, very close. Uh, Superman's not much for murder. He's not Batman. Uh, so, so that's good. Uh, he then uses X-ray vision to look inside the mansion and overhear and oversee the meeting between Lois and Medini. Medini is now realizing that uh, Lois is a newspaper reporter, and he's thinking if he had known that, he would never have let her in or, like, taken this meeting, which is so weird because it's... Okay, so I'll, I'll explain why it's weird after I finish this meeting. He then hypnotizes Lois, and she's going to hear Superman's voice. And through, uh, you know, a speaker in the wall, because it's fake... Uh, she hears an imitation of Superman. Superman hears this and finds a Medini's assistant in the um, second story of this mansion talking into a microphone, doing an impression of 
Superman, he then um, deals with him. But the, before that, the assistant says, I will, I will reveal what you desire, Lois, but first you must promise to print only what I permit. Now, that seems like a good reason to hypnotize Lois, uh, the reporter. But Medini has revealed in his thoughts that he didn't know she was a reporter. So was he just doing a, like a – is this like a regular thing he does? It's like, hey, through hypnotism, I'm going to reveal things that you want to know which I don't know how hypnotism does that. But, um, so I guess, was that it? But now he's like, oh, she's a reporter, so now I can, like, bend the press to my will, um, I guess. It's a little bit of a flimsy reason for Lois to go to this hypnotist, but uh, but uh, we've seen flimsier reasoning, I guess, in, in previous comics. So Superman deals with uh, the assistant, and Medini is going to deal with Lois. Uh, Superman busts up the uh, speaker system, you know, like he always loves to do. He loves property damage. And the assistant is going to bash uh, Superman with a big, heavy monkey wrench. Uh, but, of course, it doesn't work. Superman's laughing. He's having a great time getting hit in the face by this wrench. And uh, the assistant is going to do one final swing, and he swings it... Um, so hard that it bounces off his, off of Superman's face and hits him in the face, knocks him out. It's kind of like those videos. If you ever seen a video of a guy trying to like damage a uh, a vehicle with a bat, he like hits it and it bounces back and hits him in the face and knocks him out. It's very funny uh, to watch people do stupid things uh, and then in, inadvertently hurt themselves. I guess. Uh, but Superman then rushes downstairs to try to save Lois. But Medini is making her forget who Medini is, uh, I guess, because uh, that's a part of his thing. He doesn't want anyone to know, you know, what's up. Superman's going to rush at him, going to save Lois. and But Medini hypnotizes Superman uh, before he can get there and tells him to stop to not take another step which this is a very this is a very early introduction of something i feel is very prevalent in superman's comic stories uh for for the better superman of course can deal with physical threats quite easily so the threats that he has a lot of problems with at least from what i've seen uh, is the mental side uh we like in later versions we get hector hammond uh who's has brain power uh, the Ultra Humanite, I think, has sort of tele... I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, dealing with Superman mentally is is a, a good way to bypass his strength. So Superman stops dead. He can't... He can barely move uh, even with his incredible strength because he has a mental block, hypnotism. Uh, Medini then rushes uh, out... He, he rushes out to his uh, guards in the outside and says, hey, watch over Superman and also call the morning pictorial because uh, they will want this scoop on Superman's identity. So Medini then takes Lois uh, away and Superman is trying desperately to break this hypnotist block on his movement. He eventually does, but he's still not at 100%. He uh, he is he's unable to like control his movements precisely, and so he tries to rush out of the room. But instead, he just throws himself through a wall. And Medini has gotten his uh, security guards off of the fence at this point, and so they rush at him. One's excited to uh, t- 
to bash Superman with some brass knuckles. And they rush at him, you know, seeing that he's all groggy from this hypnotism. But Superman luckily lifts his elbow in time uh, to basically have them both run into it, very Three Stooges style, and knock themselves out. Superman then races off, weaving unsteadily. This is the first time we've ever seen Superman, you know, not being able to control himself. And he, you know, he, he runs through a tree on accident. He tries to jump to the top of a building to get his bearings to try to find Medini and Lois, but he misses it. Luckily, he grabs onto a steeple. And he's just like, he's like, how do I free myself from this spell? Uh, we then cut to Medini and Lois. They are getting onto a airplane. And we hear on the other side of the airplane that this uh, plane is driving is flying to Kentucky, which is the home of Fort Knox, and uh, they're bringing a big gold shipment there because that is where the country's gold reserves are stored. It's one of the most secure locations in the country. Uh, the plane takes off, and uh, Medini. There's this weird panel <laughs> where the stewardess asks. Uh, Medini, I guess flight attendant is the proper term. Flight attendant asks Medini, are you comfortable? And he says, quite. And then he thinks, in 15 minutes, I'm going to strike. The, the immediately next panel is a quarter of an hour later. Okay. Um, <laughs> Medini gets up and says, everyone, your attention, please. I'm a professional magician, and I'm going to relieve the monotony of flying by, uh, by demonstrating a few tricks. Has flying gotten monotonous this quickly? It's 1940. Commercial flights are only, like, just becoming a thing. Uh, okay, yeah, it's already monotonous. I still think flying is exciting, and I've flown a lot um, for, I mean, for the average person, I guess. I haven't flown, like, a ton, but, I mean, I'm not some sort of jet setter. I know that planes are actually not great for the environment. Uh... And the stewardess says, that'll be fine. I don't know. I said stewardess again. Flight attendant. The flight attendant says, that'll be fine, which I don't know if flight attendants these days would be like, yeah, get up and do some tricks for everyone. Medini then, of course, hypnotizes everybody on the plane, uh, flight attendant, all the passengers, and then he goes into the cabin because at this point in time, you can just walk into the, uh, the flight, the pilots, where the pilot lives. What is it called? Cockpit. Cockpit of planes. Uh, because obviously 9-11 hasn't happened, terrorism hasn't happened, even though planes are terrorized quite a bit in comics, maybe not so much in real life. Uh, and he uh, he hypnotizes the pilot and says, you're going to land where I tell you. And so he does, he lands and then taxis to a large cave nearby. Great timing on Medini's part to hypnotize everybody uh, in time to land where he wants. Then, as you know, as the plan goes off without a hitch, they unload the gold, and uh, one of Medini's men gets into the cockpit and uh, is going to fly the plane to 500 feet and then jump out and let it crash with all the passengers and pilots on board. Uh, Superman is, meanwhile, trying to break this spell. He's like, I hope this will work. He jumps up into the stratosphere. And then uh, comes back down, and the change in the atmosphere and the uh, environment, uh, the air quality, uh, snaps him out of his hypnotist. I guess, I, I wonder if you could... At this point in time, Superman hasn't gone into space, so we don't know if he still needs oxygen to breathe. So, I mean, obviously in the future, he won't, um, at least as long as while he is on um, Earth, uh, under the rays of a yellow sun. 
so at this point in time, he must need oxygen because that's not something that Jerry Siegel uh, or Joe Schuster have thought about at this point. So the change in the level of oxygen maybe kind of forced his brain to like reset. I don't know. Trying to trying to put logic into an inherently illogical uh, media form uh, a la comic books. Uh, so Superman, having cleared his brain of the hypnotism, hypnotism, goes back to Medini's mansion and interrogates the guards that he has basically just terrorized for multiple pages. And he, uh, of course, the the guards they fold very easily. Um, and Superman rushes to uh, find the plane. Uh, he says, "I've got one chance in a million to locate that plane, but I've got to take it." Uh, the pilot, the, the Medini's uh, guy, jumps out after bringing the plane to um, 500 feet. Uh, so now the hypnotized passengers will now die a terrible death of crashing in a plane. Superman finds a plane, of course, uh, because he is Superman. He uh, grabs the plane in midair. I don't know how he lands safely. It just says, due to Superman's tremendously powerful muscles, plane and himself land unharmed. That's not how the conservation of motion works. Like, coming to a dead stop on the ground would still, I don't know, either crush Superman into the ground. He'd be fine, but it would still crush him into the ground. They wouldn't land safely. Um, but uh, Superman removes all the passengers from the plane, and uh, the guards rush at him. I don't know how he landed the plane back at the cave, but he did, they say, I guess he did, because there's guards there that are going to try to shoot him. He, uh, after getting all the passengers off the plane, he throws a he throws the plane, and um, it destroys it. I don't know what he's throwing the plane at. He just says, so So this is, I'll just read verbatim these two panels, uh, or three. So, due to Superman's tremendously powerful muscles, plane and himself land unhurt. Perfect landing, if I must say so myself, says Superman. As Superman removes the passengers from the plane, Medini and his henchmen dash up. So they have obviously landed near the plane, near the cave. Again, don't know how. Uh, They say, kill him, shoot him down. Superman, carrying Lois, says, you're looking for trouble. He then must put Lois down and say, well, here it is, and throws the plane. But the drawing is so incoherent, I don't know what he's throwing the plane at. Um, And then shortly after... You'll find the transport's passengers and the thieves' loot where I've indicated. Thanks, says the police officers. And that's that's how it sort of ends. You know, then we wrap it up with uh, Clark getting his story in to uh, the um, to George Taylor, which then sort of reveals the whole plot of Medini, and uh, we then hear the mayor and the police commissioner talking. Uh, about how the mystery was solved, you know, say, I said I would do it, I said I would solve it, and I solved it, and uh, the mayor says, oh, the voters will be grateful to me when the election time rolls around. Sure. And uh, Clark says, to listen to them, you wouldn't guess it was my story that broke the case. And uh, Lois says, aren't you forgetting that the real credit should go to Superman? So I guess um, Superman did wrap it up. We didn't get to see it or or enjoy any of it, uh, other than him throwing a plane for some reason. Uh, again, also, that's not your plane. The The company that owns that plane would probably like it back. It wasn't damaged or anything. Uh, so, good job, Superman. You destroyed someone's property for no reason. But that's the end. Um, 
not the best Superman story that I've we've read uh, on this show. Uh, I've certainly read better, uh, but they all can't be winners. I, I do think it's important to introduce the the mental sort of weakness that Superman has. Not that he's mentally weak, just that that is a sort of a chink in his impenetrable armor of his powers. His brain is just like any other brain most of the time. He can be mind-controlled and hypnotized and stuff like that. It makes him more of a, of a relatable character, I guess. But So that is the Superman story. Now let's move on to Zatara Sai. This issue of Zatara, or this story of Zatara, was uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Fred B. Gardiner, as as is per usual. Uh, this is called Zatara, the Master Magician, and the One-Man Crime Wave. This is one of the few comic series of the ones we've covered where every single time you get the title of the story just on the front. A lot of them are just unnamed they're just like no title for them, but Zatara always gets one. I think that's one redeeming factor of Zatara, even though I find his stories to be quite ridiculous. Um, but so let's start with the little uh, paragraph blurb because it sets up sort of the story. From out of the clear air, a great crime wave is suddenly launched on, it just says on Metropolitan City, but I believe there's an, a missing A, so it should be on A Metropolitan City. Um The criminals are so successful that even modern, up-to-date police forces, backed by chemical and scientific research, are unable to cope with them. And uh, this comic does show that the cops really aren't doing a lot. They're not really, (laughs) you know, doing their best. So there's daring holdups. There's ruthless murders and racketeering. And in the midst of all of this brutality, Zatara appears at police headquarters. And the police says, it's got us beat, sir. Zatara says, well, I've got a theory, so show me to the commissioner. So the commissioner, you know, greets Zatara. He's like, Zatara, you're so great. Um, I haven't seen you in forever. It's like, yeah, I'm here. I'm here to help you. Uh, And so Zatara says, this is being orchestrated by one man with the brain of a chessman. He's plotting the whole thing. A man with a desire for adventure. A man who plots each crime so that there are no loopholes. A man who is a bit of a genius in a way. So Zatara is going to find out uh, who it is and how he's doing what he's doing. And then the commissioner says something buck wild. He's like, you might start at the town hotspot, quote unquote. It's the scene of half a dozen crimes. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, so there's a lot of cops here at the town hotspot, you know, keeping eye on this because there's a half a dozen crimes that have happened at this establishment alone. The answer to that question is, uh, or statement is no. There's none. There's no police here. They're not doing anything at all. So uh, Zatara goes to the town hotspot, and uh, meanwhile, like, also, like, what is that? The name of it? Is that just what people call it? Because that just seems lazy. (laughs) Like, I'm not giving it a name unless its name is Town Hotspot. Um, He sees a man guarding a hallway in the town hotspot, and Zatara tries to get in, but the guard says nope. You cannot come in here. He calls him Buddy, even though they're not friends. And Zatara does some uh, illusion magic to make it seem like he's walking away, but in reality, he is walking right behind the guard into the hallway where he sees a man threatening another man with a gun. He says, one peep out of you. And then um, 
Zatara does some backwards magic. He says, well, there's a typo. So he says, Eb Remrafer Nam Nug, when in reality he should be saying, Eb Demrafer Nam Nug. So he's saying, be reformed gunman, but there is a typo and, and it's an R at the end. So that's, that's fun. Um, and so the gu- the gunman suddenly is afraid of guns. He says, a gun, mercy me, like he's like a southern belle who's fainting onto his fainting couch. He does say, I think I'm going to faint. Uh, and he runs away. And Zatara and this man know each other, the one who's being threatened with the gun. He says, um, this is Eben Perkins. He's a psychologist, apparently well-known. And Zatara and, and uh, Mr. Perkins are talking to each other about the crime wave. Um, and, and Perkins agrees that there's a very, very smart, intelligent guy behind all of the crimes. Uh, now Perkins actually knows the name of the guy. Uh, his name is Asmodeus. I don't know how he knows that, uh, or why he's not doing anything about it, but he used to be a champion chess player and he's gathered a group of crooks, uh, to do his bidding. We then cut to the headquarters of Asmodeus and I will say, a gardener must just be like, I can only draw one type of evil scientist or evil smart guy because he looks exactly like the smart guy who froze New York in a, uh, a very early Zatara issue. Uh, he's got really weird teeth and really round uh, sort of John Lennon-like glasses. But he has slicked back silver hair like a creep. You know, like, that'll slick back real nice, you know? Uh, he's he's coordinating an attack on uh, an establishment. He's got his guards. He's got a little uh, diorama, a little scale model of the establishment to, to plan it out. And uh, suddenly a group of thugs bust into the town hotspot where Zatara and Perkins are. And if there were some cops here, they could maybe do something about it. But instead, Zatara will, of course handle it he turns um the the thugs were about to uh kidnap a woman for whatever reason maybe she's very wealthy they're gonna do a ransom classic kidnapping and they have a bag and they're gonna put it over her head but zatara turns the bag into an octopus and i will say the drawing of this giant octopus like grabbing these two thugs is actually quite quite good quite good and detailed um and uh, asmodeus is watching on a radioactive screen now, I don't know if that is radio hyphen or space active screen or the screen is radioactive because that second one seems a bit dangerous to be around. Uh, but uh, so somehow through some sort of camera technology, Asmodeus is watching. He watches all of his crimes. That's how he, he keeps them so detailed and uh, precise. Uh, and he's mad at, uh, at this happening. Sitar explains the situation to the police, police, and they uh, say that they'll they'll give word to the commissioner about uh, about what's going on. Uh, meanwhile, Asmodeus is watching Zatara talk to the police um, on his screen, and he's like, "Ah, this is the man who's who's done the trick on me. I'll get him and show him no mercy." Uh, Perkins and uh, Zatara are heading home after, you know, dealing with the, the criminals, when a car drives up beside them and shoots at them. Uh, Zatara then does just, uh, <clears throat> he just causes the car that's chasing them to straight up explode. Uh, 
which does add uh, some numbers to Zatara's body count. He, of course, as I've said previously, has a lot, just like Batman. Uh, he's a, <laughs> the look on his face after it is just like stone-cold psychopath, um, and that's very scary. They discover that the people shooting at them, they got their tires, uh, so they can't drive. But luckily, here comes a garage truck. What a, what a happy coincidence. And Satara's like, wait a minute. Why would a repair truck appear so suddenly, unless sent by Asmodeus? And wouldn't you know it, once the garage truck, the, the tow truck gets there, two dudes pop out of the back with guns. And there's a great panel uh, after that where uh, Zatara says, guns fly away in his backward spell magic and they do they the guns just grab they just grow wings and they just fly up in the air that'll probably be that'll probably be primo, primo panel I'm gonna post that one because it's very funny to see just winged guns flying into the air um then he gets some chains magically to uh chain up the thugs and then sends perkins home because he doesn't want him to be in any danger because like zatara does this all the time you know he's he's prepared for it um, then there's a weird sequence where Zatara calls the police commissioner on the phone, and Zatara says, those men you captured say the address of their boss is, and then he kind of fades off, and then the next panel is the guy he's talking to, the, I assume the police commissioner, says, North Square Building. So... Did he know? Did they know that? Did they get that information from the people, from the dudes that they just captured? Um, I, let's assume that they they got it from interrogation of the thugs. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't make any sense why he would know that. So Zadar goes to the North Square building and to an office, and he finds the tigress. You know, the tigress from previous uh, things. Zatara immediately begins like questioning Tigris, like, what do you know of Asmodeus? Like, you gotta tell me. Um, and and Tigris keeps saying, Zatara, no, no, listen. Uh, when suddenly an explosion happens uh, around her neck, she's wearing a necklace, and a gas explodes all around her. You think it's like, wow, she's just gonna straight up die, but no, it's just a gas, amnesia gas, whatever that is. Um, Zatara uh, is, he says, you know, uh, this man is very powerful. Uh, I must search back into the tigress's subconscious because the amnesia gas made her forget everything she knew. I guess about only about Asmodeus? I don't know. I gotta stop asking so many questions. Uh, so he does a spell to look into her subconscious and he finds the house uh, where, the, uh, where Asmodeus is located but she has never been inside so when he tries to look inside that her subconscious for the inside of the house it's just a black uh screen so uh, she has not been inside which is i guess not helpful or unhelpful he knows what the house looks like so zatara goes and finds the house and infiltrates it with his shadow form uh and he overhears asmodeus he's like standing right next to him uh, as asmodeus is watching this screen seeing Tigris and Zatara together, and Asmodeus is like, well, I'll get him yet. Uh, and Admodius, talking to himself like a crazy person, says that he's going to send three expert gunmen to take out Zatara by surprise. And Zatara, instead of, you know, like, getting 
transporting himself. Like, he can for sure teleport. Um, he just goes back to his body with his shadow form um, to deal with the gunman. He turns Tigris into a doll, like a little toy. Because um, it's safer for her to be a little mannequin. Uh, the gunmen show up at this office that Zatara's at. He turns their guns into doves. And then he, like, kind of hypnotizes these thugs into staring at this big piece of paper that says, Thou shalt not kill. Uh, and they can't look away. Uh, he then flies to the house where Asmodeus is. He sees a sort of invisible fence that alerts Asmodeus to intruders or arrivals, people arriving at his house. Uh, Zatara uses his shadow form to go into the house again. And then something really stupid happens. So Zatara's already been here in shadow form, okay? He was in here, he saw Asmodeus watching him on the screen and sending the gunman after him. But he didn't do anything about it. He had Asmodeus, like, in the palm of his hand. He said, no, I just won't do anything about it. But now he's back again. With his shadow form, his, his body is still outside of the house because he can't come in without alerting Asmodeus. But the we see the shadow form doing magic. So the, you're saying the shadow form could have done magic this whole time? Why didn't you do it the first time? Like, turn him into... Like, do, do what you're going to do to him at the end of the story that we're getting to. And But do it... It just doesn't make any sense. It's This is why I don't like Satara's stories. They just... They ignore, they make it up as they go along, and it doesn't, it's just, ugh, I can't even explain myself. It's just, it makes me so frustrated. So, Zatara turns off uh, Asmodeus' screen, so he can't see things outside of the house. Then goes out uh, back to his body and turns off the invisible fence. Uh, then comes back inside, or, or comes inside, and Asmodeus figures out his screen to, to work again uh he he activates a trap for steel bars to come down in in a hallway stopping zatara from progressing uh, then then he does some magic to change asmodeus's memory of like never seeing him on the screen never seeing him being an intruder in his house so then Asmodeus is like, well, why did I activate the steel bar trap? Let's undo it. So he undoes it. And then Asmodeus activates a stair trap uh, as uh, Zatara is seen again on screen. And it activates it so like the stairs open up, but, but Zatara flies. He flies by creating wings on his back when he has just been flying without wings every single other time. He then finally, once he gets to... Asmodeus says, be man of stone in backwards magic, uh, turning him into stone. But he does, Zatara does say, that will hold you until the police arrive to place you behind bars for your crimes. Which uh, says, hey, I didn't just kill this guy. He is going to undo the spell once the police get here, uh, keeping Asmodeus alive. And, and that's the end. And I, I didn't try to hide it very much. And I doubt I succeeded if, at all. But it was a really frustrating story. And Zataras are just always so frustrating, as I've said. I just hope they get better. They just need to get better. And I don't know if it's I don't know if it's Gardner Fox's fault or Fred B. Gardner's fault, but they're just so like Zatara can do anything with his magic, but he does stuff in the 
stupidest way. Uh, but that is enough about that. I'm getting very angry about Zatara. Uh, as that's the end of Action Comics number 25. And that is going to be the end of this uh, week's episode of, of Issue by Issue, Golden Age. Uh, make sure to uh, force your friends and enemies to download and listen to the show on your podcast app of choice. Uh, some sad news about podcast apps, Google Podcasts, if you use that, I use it, uh, shutting down, no longer going to be a thing, going to have to use YouTube Music, which is lame, so, but, uh, yeah, um, and uh, force your friends and enemies to also rate and review the show on iTunes, it helps out the show, so more people can can listen to it and learn about how frustrating Zatara's early stories are. Uh, hit us up at our socials at Issue Issue Podcast on Instagram and Twitter, uh, where, where I post primo panels and covers. And I'm, I'm thinking of maybe starting to do like polls, like, oh, who had the best story? What was the most ridiculous thing we saw this week? All that kind of stuff. Uh, and be sure to uh, keep your eyes peeled for later this week when another episode of Issue by Issue Crisis comes out. Uh, that one's been really fun to do. It's added a lot of uh, fun, more modern stories into the into the podcast that I'm really enjoying. So that's going to do it for me. Hopefully you stayed through all the plugs. Thank you. You know, if you didn't, you're not hearing this, so curse you. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk to you all next week. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Nick Byers. Uh, see you later. Mm-hmm.